Does the weather actually make a difference in the spread of the coronavirus? Now, that's what a group of Wits University scientists have been looking into. They've taken part in an international symposium on climatic factors influencing the spread of COVID-19. And they presented a Southern African perspective at that gathering. So let's bring into the conversation Professor Bob Scholes. He's Professor of Systems Ecology at the Global Change Institute at Wits University. Prof, good afternoon and thank you for speaking to me today. What effect does the weather have on viruses? viruses in general to start with? So for this particular category of virus, coronavirus, all the known ones have some sensitivity to weather. In general, they are more prevalent in the winter months than they are in the summer months. And the reasons for that are sort of, uh, we, we can make some inferences. It's about the sensitivity of the virus while it's being transmitted from one person to another. Whether that is transmitted in an aerosol in the air, in which case the virus is very exposed. And if the air is particularly dry, for instance, that little aerosol particle evaporates rather quickly, uh, or if it's hot, it, it kills the virus. Similarly, if it lands on a surface and that surface is warm, the, light, the virus lives for a much shorter period of time than it is cold. So we sort of expect this kind of virus, which has no protective shell around it, to be quite sensitive to climate. So should we assume that because warm weather is inhospitable to the viruses you've just spoken about, that it would likely be harmful to the coronavirus too? That is one of the kind of working assumptions out there. But in practice, we see no evidence of that whatsoever. Lots of people have looked for it. Some people have claimed to have found it. But all the studies are quite flawed. And the basic reason for this is is that when you have a novel virus, in other words, one that we've never encountered before, going into a naive population, a population that's never been exposed to this virus where there's no immunity um, at all, then it has an enormous infection rate. And that infection rate is sufficiently high that any small influence by weather hardly makes any difference at all. So you can, up to date, uh, catch COVID-19 anywhere in the world, in the steamy tropics, in the uh, icy polar regions. It seems to make no difference whatsoever because this infection rate is so high. But as the infection rate comes down, either because we start building up the herd immunity or because we kind of learn uh, we, we do the social distancing and these kind of adaptations, then it might be that this relatively smaller uh, influence due to climate starts becoming apparent. Right. Uh, Prof, I'm interested to know, when you are doing research of this nature with a, a novel virus like the coronavirus, well, what is it that obscures your results in the first year or so? Uh, well, that's an extremely good question. The main thing that obscures our results is we don't have a classical kind of control versus treated um, you know, experiment like you would do if you were in the lab because you can't say you know, to half of the people in the world, no, you know, you've got to you know, go around you know, doing whatever you like, but this group we're going to you know, put into isolation or, 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 or whatever. So you're dealing with what's called a natural experiment, just the variations between different places and whatnot to try and tease out some of these effects. And the social effects 
whether what they called non-pharmacological interventions, things like lockdowns and wearing masks and the behavioural changes which occur, regardless of whether governments mandate them or not. People, when they see their friends and neighbours getting sick, behave in a different way than if you know they weren't aware of that. And that really messes up the results because that effect is probably three or four times bigger than the subtle climate effects. And so teasing them out uh, becomes very difficult. Yes, I can, I can well imagine. So if the, how long will it be before we actually know, uh, you know what, what the effects are? Will it take two years, three years, perhaps longer than that, Prof? I, I, we're hopeful that it will be apparent in, in, with, within a year from the first infection. So every place in the world really will have gone through a full annual cycle by that stage, and we should be able to tease out some of these effects if they're strong enough to matter um, by that stage. The problem with that is that's still in six months' time, and um, there's an awful lot of um, you know illness and uh, and and mortality which could take place in the next six months. So it'd be really really good if we could um, come to that conclusion earlier than having to wait for a year. And to do that, we do a clever little bit of magic science magic called a space for time substitution. So instead of having to follow one place throughout the year, we can compare Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere, which are six months apart in time. So we can see what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere during our winter time, which we just passed through, and extrapolate that to the Northern Hemisphere You know when they will be going into winter. And that's what we're trying to do. The problem is that that becomes enormously complicated by other factors factors of differences in developmental status, mm. um, differences in you know, how soon in the epidemic they were exposed, and all those other social you know, kind of factors we're talking about. If there is a link between seasonal changes and the disease, Prof, then when could we potentially expect a second wave? We would expect that as countries go into their uh, colder, drier months. So... But we know already that many countries in the Northern Hemisphere are already experiencing second waves, even though they're going, they're still in the summer. So it's not that, you know, we'll only see a second wave um, when we hit winter. A lot of this depends on the kind of the success of our control of the first wave. Sort of paradoxically, if you're really, really successful at suppressing the first wave, it kind of increases your risk of the second wave because it means that not many in the population have acquired actual herd immunity, that the decrease in the the numbers, such as you reported earlier for Africa, is probably not due to herd immunity. It's more to uh, the success of our non-pharmacological interventions. Thank you so much for speaking to me this afternoon, Prof. It really is such an interesting topic and I, I wait to see how it develops and how, uh, you know, we, we start to see more, more interesting and, and clearer patterns in the next few years to come. Professor Bob Scholes, he's Professor of Systems Ecology at the Global Change Institute at Fitz University.